beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Psalm 40, David is taking a look at his life. He's taking a look at the things that God has done for him. He is anticipating things that God will do for him. And so he is looking forward, but he's also looking backward. He's looking up and he's looking around at his life. He is seeing what has gone on in his life and he is struggling greatly. He recognizes that God is the one who rescued him, took him out of a miry pit and clay, a horrible pit, brought him back and set his feet upon a rock, who rescued him, gave him safety. But David must be going through the difficulties again, and he's anticipating and he's looking for God to deliver him again. He says in verse 12, for innumerable evils have surrounded me. Notice innumerable evils. He's saying that I can't even count them. So many things are coming at me so fast, so furiously, that I can't even number them. I can't defend myself. I can't stand against them. They've surrounded me. They're all about me. doesn't matter where I go, where I look, or what I do. These innumerable evils have engulfed me. And His help, as He sees, is only from the Lord. He says, my iniquities have overtaken me. David, notice the outward, the inward. The outward is he sees the enemies of the Lord surrounding him and trying to put an end to his life. But internally, he has the conviction of the sin that goes on within his soul as well. So he is deeply struggling. He finds this, this sickness is going on in his soul, as it were. Of, he becomes lethargic. becomes difficult to worship when you're going through such situations. He says, I'm not able to look up. Notice? That's an allusion to prayer and to praise to our God. And David is so downcast at this point. Reminds me of Psalm 32. And that's about what's going on within you know, the Psalm 30s up to Psalm 40s. There are some things that are running in succession in David's life. Problems and difficulties. And here he is. And he was a sick man In Psalm 32, he's delivered by the Lord, and yet he finds himself going through the problems again. And beloved, you know what that's like. You know what it means to go through problems as Christians, and then you get through that problem, and then another is right at the heels, and you go through that as well. And so we say, good grief, people would say. And you know, in a sense, for the Reformed believer, grief is good. There is good in grief, because all things are working together for good. God uses the grief that we go through to bring good things. We say things like, there's one thing right after another, and that's how it is in life. And you young people who haven't experienced that to much degree as of yet, keep living. And it'll come. Because as the sparks fly upward, so man is given unto troubles. Troubles in the life. As sparks flying from a campfire and just all one after another and you can't even count them. So it is the troubles that come to the Christian in this world. You know, man is born into troubles as the sparks fly upward in number. And so David said, they are more than the hairs on my head and therefore my heart fails me. You know what it means that your heart fails you? You become faint of heart. Uh, I had a condition at one point. I, I, I still have it, but it, depending on weight regulation, um, if I'm too light, 
when I stand up after sitting down, the blood doesn't rush. I have a low blood pressure, so my blood doesn't rush to the head, and I get faint. And I have passed out a number of times over the, the last probably 10, 15 years as a result of that. So when, when you bend down and you know what it is to be down on the ground and stand up quick and you feel lightheaded, you feel faint, you, you, you feel you've got to sit down for a time. That's what David is losing heart in that sense. It seems as if in his life going on right now, there's no stamina, there's no courage that's being built up in his life. He's struggling. You been there? I've been there. Been there a number of times in my Christian life. That's why I see in this psalm uh, two particular watchwords. One is thanksgiving to God, and another one is lamentation to the Lord, lamenting for the difficulties in the Christian life. We cry out to God, and that's what you find so often in the psalms. That's why, beloved, they resonate with us. That's why, like a magnet, you're attracted to the psalms when you go through suffering. When you read that right there, as I just read in verse 12, where there's innumerable evils, and you're on a job, and you're surrounded by the wicked all around you, and you're going through it, you you can resonate with that. You you can understand that. You can enter in, as it were, with that. In one sense, you you realize uh, what David was going through. You feel it yourself. You sense it yourself. You understand the iniquities and the conviction that goes on in the soul. To even say that your sins and your troubles are more than the hairs of your head. You understand that. And so you seek out that comfort. You find the comfort there in God's Word. You find comfort in knowing as an example how David went through the trials and troubles and difficulties of life. And so we draw comfort from that. And I think that's it. I think that as we recognize a fellow believer is truly struggling, and you find that, don't you? You find that throughout all of the Psalms, there is some aspect of lamentation that you can identify with. And therefore, the reality of the Christian life is seen in a life of the psalmist. Struggle. Yeah, there are great joys and there are great blessings that God gives. And it is a blessing. It is a wondrous joy to be one of the redeemed, to be a saint, to be a believer, to be a Christian, to be one who was born of the Spirit of God. I mean, you you can't even explain the blessings and the joy uh, that we have to be those that partake of the benefits of Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean that we're not going to suffer. Quite the opposite. In this world, you will have tribulation. Jesus Christ is the only righteous individual who lived on this earth. Adam, for a moment, for a time, I don't know how long that time was, but Christ lived 33 and a half years on this, on this, this earth, and he lived and he fulfilled all the demands of God's law and was righteous and holy. He was hated. He had trouble at every turn. He was loved by some and hated by others and misunderstood by a whole host of people. One said this about him. One said that about him. And some didn't even quite understand. Why? Because you cannot understand Christ except from the Word of Christ. And that's why the disciples, when they said, we have found the Messiah, the Christ, the one that Moses wrote about. We have found Him. Because the Word of God teaches that. So there is where the comfort 
is in God's Word. And so, we struggle. And there is thanks, and there is lament. And I think that as we come to this text, especially this morning, uh, David is writing about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want to discount that these are things actually happening in David's life, but this is prophecy. And how do you know that it's prophetic? How do you know that David is speaking about someone other than himself, but even with the troubles that he goes through, even with the difficulties that he's experienced, what he's writing, how do you know that he's speaking uh, further than of himself? Because Hebrews chapter 10 tells us. Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of the Hebrews, quotes this very text in speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a difference, and we'll see that here from the Hebrews uh, quotation and what we have here. But this is what our text says this morning. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. And my ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. David is understanding something about his life and being delivered by God, being rescued by God. And it's not just offering a sacrifice. It's not all that God requires of us. God does require sacrifice in the Old Covenant. But what he's speaking about here further in the life of David is that David would give himself to the Lord. You know, David had said at one point he was going to build a temple for the Lord, and the Lord told him, no, you don't understand. Um, I'm going to make you into a temple. And that was a foresignification of the new temple that would come, and that is Jesus Christ. And so David wanted to build a house for the Lord, but the Lord made David a house. And so this is the blessing. David is starting to understand that it's not the sacrifice and offerings. It's not just simply living your life and doing whatever you want and then coming in and throwing some sacrifices down and that makes everything okay. No, the Lord wants us to live for Him. This is what David is getting across. The sacrifices were, it could be the meat offerings that were given, the sacrifices, the burnt offerings as it were. Um, there is, he makes the distinction between sacrifice and offering. And the sacrifices were made with the animal sacrifices. And the offerings were made usually with grain offerings that were given. But he brings them both together and he says, this is not what you desire. You desire me. You desire me to live for you. You desire all of me. And that's what Paul makes mention of in Romans chapter 12. Uh, that we are not to be conformed to the ways of this world. We're to be transformed so that we might be a living sacrifice of thanksgiving to God. It's David's life. We are delivered for this purpose, beloved. Uh, while I have it on my mind, turn to uh, 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. And notice what Peter describes the believers as, the, the, the redeemed of Jesus Christ. What he calls us. He says in verse 4, 1 Peter 2 verse 4, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Now, this is Christ. Christ is the living stone. He is rejected by men, but he is chosen by God. He is chosen to be the prophet, priest, and king. And he is the one, as the Apostle Peter says, he is precious 
in God's sight. Now, if Christ is precious in the sight of God, and you are one born of the Spirit of God, God's Spirit dwells in you, then of necessity, resistless logic, that you, as one who was born of the Spirit of God, must see Christ as precious in your life. If Christ isn't precious in your life, you have a problem. You may not be one who was born of the Spirit of God. Because if you're born of the Spirit of God, you are going to take on more and more of these qualities that you see God-likeness. And that is loving the Savior. And so, verse 5, he says, You also, as living stones. Notice, Christ is the living stones. We're living stones in Him. We are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Drop down to verse 9. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God. You get the point? You have been redeemed by the Lord and brought out of darkness so that you might proclaim His praises. That you might walk in the light even as Christ is in the light. That you might be one, metaphorically speaking, of the light that is truth, that brings the truth and exposes the error in our world. This is why God has redeemed us. So that we would be given completely and thoroughly over to Him. Fully. In all of our thoughts, words, and our actions. And this is happening by the working of the Spirit. And is happening continually, daily, incrementally as it were. It's the grinding of sanctification which goes slow, but it's methodic. It, it just continues to grind. And this is the Holy Spirit making us more and more like Christ. So we are to be this sacrifice to God. My ears you have opened, burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Now, here's where it gets, let's speak a little bit about prophetically what David is writing here. When the writer of the Hebrews quotes this text, he does so from the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And he doesn't use the word ears He uses a broader word, which is body. And a body you have prepared for me. Now, yes, the incarnation, right? It wasn't the sacrifice of the blood of bulls and goats that could take away sin. That could not remove the sin. These things were foreshadows, signs and symbols of the redemption that would be in the Lamb of God that would be given to take away the sin of the world. And the believers never trusted the blood of bulls and goats. They trusted in what they represented because they pointed beyond themselves as everything in creation does. We are to point to the glory of God. We have been created in God's image and likeness for His glory. So it is with everything in creation. One finger pointing to the glory of God. Here it is, the blood of bulls and goats. They point to the redemption, ceremonially speaking, that is found in the Messiah who would come. We find that mother promise in Genesis chapter 3. So, this couldn't take away sin, but it was Christ who would take away sin. 
So he says, my ears you have opened. Now, you could take it in understanding David's ears being under, open to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I think that's misunderstanding what he says here. I think that recognizing that David is already a believer and he already understands the goodness of God and the redemption that God provides. I think this is going back to Exodus 21 when it speaks of a slave who was purchased by the master who then at the year of Jubilee, which was the seventh year, the beginning of the seventh year, uh, he was to be set free. But if the slave desired to remain with his master, he took his ear to the wall and they took an awl, A-W-L, and they poached a hole through his ear and it was a demonstration that he was a slave for life. And so this is the life of Christ. He comes as God's messenger. He comes to do God's bidding in all that he does. His meat and his drink was to do the will of the Father in heaven. And so burnt offerings and sin offerings, God didn't require. He didn't require for our salvation. What he required was the body, was the incarnation, was Christ coming in the flesh to live and fulfill all the demands of the law in the place of his people. And then you know this is speaking directly to Jesus. This couldn't be David. Even though in David's life he had desired to do the will of God. He says, then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. The scroll of the book isn't written about David. I think when David refers to the scroll of the book, he's referring to the, the old covenant, the five books, and what is the, the, uh, the, the, the instructions given for a king, and how a king is to rule. The Proverbs speak about that. He is to rule with wisdom, with justice, with equity, by the law of God. So, written in that way, but the whole of the book, the scroll of the book, the compiling of all the book, the comprehensiveness of it, is Jesus Christ. John chapter 5, uh, we find that you search the scriptures, Jesus told the Pharisees. And in them you think you have eternal life, but these scriptures speak of me. He also said in John chapter 5, verse 46, he says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. Well, what did Moses write? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He wrote about me. Luke chapter 24, verse 27. Jesus speaks about the law and the prophets. They all were directing towards him. Then he says in verse 44, the Psalms, the law, and all the prophets wrote about me. So in the whole of the book, what do we find? It speaks of Jesus. If you haven't seen Jesus in Scripture, you've missed it. Because scripture points to him. It was written about him. He reveals himself in this word. Jesus is the revelation of scripture. Uh, as he said, it is written of me. He has come and he has come to do according to the word of God. The, the whole of the book speaks about Jesus' work for his people. You know what Jesus did? If I ask any of these young kids in here... In the Sunday school classes, what did Jesus do for you? What did Jesus do? I guarantee you, this is what they'll say. He died for my sins. That may be true. 
you, they may be trusting Christ and that he died for their sins. They may be believing that and trusting that. And that's good, but that's not all of it. What else did Jesus do? He had to do more than just die for your sins. The good news of the gospel is more than just Jesus came and died. Oh, he did do that. But there is a positive righteousness that we need to stand before the judgment throne of God. We need covering of righteousness. We need this imputed to us. We need to be reckoned righteous and holy in the sight of God. We need to be cleansed with the blood of the Lamb. Christ had to positively fulfill the demands of the law. He had to keep all the stipulations of the covenant of works in the place of His people. Christ must fulfill this for His people in their stead. He goes to the cross and He lays down His life to absorb the wrath of God against the violators of the commandments of God. That's us. Those who have broken, those that were given to His Son. He redeemed them by His life and by His death. And we know that the Father then accepted that as payment. Because He raised Him from the dead. He ascended to the right hand and now sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling over all things. Christ's work was accepted by the Father. He came to do what was written of Him. He came to crush the head of the serpent. He came to set His people at liberty. He came to redeem His people. He came to lead captivity captive and give gifts to men. He came to affirm to those that were redeemed by His precious blood and by His perfect work that you have full, final, and free forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That you will never be condemned. That He was condemned in your place. He came to honor the Father, to glorify God, to do the will of God. That was His meat and that was His drink, to do the will of His Father in heaven. Who could accuse Him of sin? So Jesus asked that own question. Who is it that accuses me of sin? If I've sinned, point it out. There could not be any pointing because He had no sin. As I mentioned this morning in the Sunday school, the woman who was caught in adultery, and when they all came with bringing stones to stone her, and then Jesus said, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. And they began dropping them and walking away. The only one legitimate there who could stone that woman was Jesus, because He was the only one without sin. And what does He do? He shows mercy. Go and sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Jesus came to fulfill what was written of Him. And notice His delight. This ought to be our delight, but this was the delight of the Lord. His delight was to do the will of God. Do you find God's will tedious? Do you find God's will difficult? Do you find God's will boring? Do you find it agitating? When you think about the will of God revealed in His Word, what do you think about God's will? What about in the providential hand of God, He brings suffering into your life? What do you think about the will of God then? What do you think about the will of God when things don't go the way you think they should go? And that's the arrogance of man, right? Uh, we say things like, you know, if I was God, I would do this. It just shows the stupidity of mankind, the depravity of the heart. If you were God, that I would do this. What is that implying? That what God is doing is not right. And that's the arrogance and the pride that goes on in the heart of man. 
We are here to serve Him. He's not here to serve us. We are here to serve Him. He is the Lord. He is the Master. We are the slaves. We are those that are purchased by Him. Do you find God's law tedious? Christ never did. David even had a delight in his heart for the law of God. And notice, I delight to do your will. What is the will of God? Our sanctification. What is the will of God? That the word of Christ would dwell in you richly. What is the will of God? That the spirit of God would fill you to the fullness. What is the will of God? That I walk in truth. That I walk in righteousness. That I be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That I be faithful to the Lord. That I honor Him. That I be a living sacrifice of thanksgiving to Him. Jesus said, my commandments are not burdensome. They are not tedious to the redeemed. There is a delight to do the will of God in the heart of the believer. So David is demonstrating, but how much more so the fullness of it in the person of Jesus Christ. The law of God is within the heart. It comes alive within the heart. It comes alive within the heart for good. It's no longer a condemnation for the believer. Christ has bore our condemnation. The law of God now coming alive in the heart, it reveals to us the character of God. We all see, I trust, the wisdom of the commandments of God. And what God lays out. And if the whole world were to abide by the commandments of God, what kind of society would we live in? Uh, It would be utopia, we'd say. It would be heaven. Uh, That's not going to happen in this world, in this condition, this life in which we know it. But if it were the case that all men kept the commandments of God perfectly, what kind of a world would we live in? It would be heaven, wouldn't it? And that's what we are heading for. We are heading for a kingdom of righteousness. That means a kingdom wherein we do the will of God perfectly from the heart. We walk in righteousness. We walk in holiness. We delight with the fullness of our being in the law of God. Paul said, I through the law died to the law. Died to living as the law as a means of my justification before God. The law slays us. You recognize as you read the law of God that you haven't kept any of the commandments. The difficulty that I see, and some of you, if you've read the table talk, you have found in there a confusion of speaking about the law. That the law points you to Jesus Christ. And it uses humanity and it uses believers. And at times I'm not sure what actually is being conveyed. But the law of God, the moral law of God does not point you to the Savior. The Canons of Dort teach us this. It points to us and demonstrates to us the difficulty of our not fulfilling the commandments of God, of how we have broken all of them. But it doesn't point out a remedy. The Gospel does that. So for the believer, uh, when I'm reading the Ten Commandments and I'm convicted that I've broken the Ten Commandments, They drive me to Christ because I have the gospel. I know the gospel of Christ. I have Christ. And I know that He's my refuge, my hiding place. But not the unbeliever. The ceremonial aspect points out the gospel of Jesus Christ. The ceremonial aspect, the sacrifices, the offerings, the types, shadows, symbols, ceremonies. They point us that we need a substitution. We need one to atone for our sins. That's found 
in Christ. And so for the believer, the law comes alive and it no longer condemns us and we delight to do the will of God and we rejoice. And that's what David found in his heart. But more to the, the point of Jesus Christ, it was Christ's meat and drink. He fulfilled the jots and tittles of the law for us in our place. You know, but don't, don't wink at that. Christ fulfilled everything that needs to be fulfilled for our salvation. How often do you think about that? How often do you think about you broke the commandments today? You didn't have a desire in the morning right away to get up and jump out of bed and come to worship, did you? Oh, ten more minutes. Ten more minutes. Ten more minutes. Yeah, but today is the day that we prepare ourselves and we gather corporately to worship our God. Ten more minutes, please. This is not that great exuberance that wells up with the zeal that you find in the life of Christ. I come to do your will. It's my delight to do your will in all that I think and say and I do. And I do it for the glory of the Father and for the salvation of a multitude. As believers, those being conformed into the image of Christ, there's the delight for the law. But we want it more, don't we? We need it more. We need more of the fullness of it. And it's coming, but it comes slowly. It comes by the work of sanctification. And David says, I have proclaimed the good news of your righteousness. Christ went about preaching the good news. That's why he was sent. He came to preach the good news. He came to set the captives free. He came to uh, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He came to save his people from their sins. And that's an aspect of proclamation. And David says, I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness. The righteous works of the Messiah. The righteous works of the Savior on behalf of the people. Now, beloved, David is proclaiming this about 750 years before Christ came. And here we are looking back to the cross and having the fullness of the revelation of God in Scripture. And how much do we proclaim the good news of God's righteousness? That God is righteous and God is holy. And that we really start to put down all the nonsense of the world and the way that it speaks about God. God is a holy God. And He is going to judge sin. And that is not God being unfair God is just. And if you want justice, line up and you'll be condemned. Because if you're wanting justice, you are already under the just judgment of God. Beloved, we need mercy. Christ is the mercy of God. Christ is the forgiveness of God. You want everlasting life? It's in Jesus. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. Run to Jesus Christ. He alone gives rest. He gives righteousness. And so the proclamation here, the good news, is the Messiah. It's Christ. He's the righteous of God. And David has done this in the great assembly. I think today the church is embarrassed. It's timid. It's shy. Well, I'm not a good speaker. You don't have to be a good speaker. You just have to speak. You just have to open your mouth and tell people about your Jesus. That's all you have to do. Take them to the Scriptures. There is a remedy to the problem of sin. There's a remedy to the difficulty in our life of sin. And His name is Jesus. 
Have you ever asked an unbeliever this question? What do you do with your guilt? Everybody has guilt. We all have guilt from time to time. Guilt is associated with sin. What do you do with your guilt? Well, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is forgiveness in Christ. That deals with the guilt of our sin. Christ has dealt with the guilt of our sins once for all time. But in a relational sense, we continue to come to the Lord confessing our sin. What do you do when you're an unbeliever? Where do you go? Where do you go with your guilt? What do you do with your guilt? Well, they go to the bar. They suppress it with entertainment. They suppress it with the things of the world. Buy more. Buy bigger. More money. More pleasure. More vacations. More cruises. More excitement. More things. And when the things run out, now what? Because they will run out. What do you do with your guilt? And beloved, you open your mouth and you tell them, Christ is the, he is the one who takes our guilt. He is the Redeemer. He is the one who covers. He's the atoning sacrifice. He is the one who took our sins far into the wilderness, never to be remembered against us again. Open your mouth in the great assembly. Speak to the people of God. Speak to one another. Encourage, build up, and, and revive one another in that way with the word of truth. David says, I didn't restrain my lips. Now you can certainly say this about Jesus. He went about everywhere preaching the good news. David in his life as well spoke about the glory of God, the wonder of God, the salvation of God. And the Lord knows. David before the Lord is saying this, I have not restrained my lips. And the Lord knows his heart. And the Lord knows that David was one who was a preacher of righteousness. Well, beloved, how about us? Just think about the full circle as we are those that have been redeemed out of the pit to be true worshipers, to gather together, to be a living sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, to sing His holy praise and to declare His holy name. Are we restraining our lips? Are we keeping closed mouth in a world uh, that is going to hell faster than we realize are we keeping from talking to other people who are under the wrath and condemnation of God right now and yet we are too afraid, we are refraining from speaking? Christ never refrained. David had a desire to tell people. He spoke in the midst of the congregation. This is our duty as the redeemed. To bear the light, to live as salt, to proclaim the word, to tell them about our Jesus and about salvation in Him. Beloved, the church certainly needs a revival. And revivals in the church always begin with a reformation. And a reformation is that of going back to the Word of God. And when we go back to the Word of God, we see the things that are important in the priorities of life. Now, I'm not bashing any of the, the things that we we have entertainment. We have things that are pleasurable. And God has given us these things. Fine. Nothing wrong with those things. But when those things eclipse the things that are important, the worship of God, the honor of God, the speaking of God's name, then it becomes a problem. It's a huge problem. It becomes an idol in our lives that needs to be cast out. 
we are to be the proclaimers of the wondrous salvation. As we look back to what Christ has done, He has fulfilled it. So I'm no longer under condemnation. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Christ has redeemed. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. Christ has done this. And we look to Him and are comforted and we reach out and we tell others as well. These are examples that even as Paul wrote in Romans 15, 1 Corinthians 10, these things that were written before were written for our learning and for our admonition. And this is the admonition for us. Look to Christ and get moving, beloved. It's not a let go and let God. It's a trust God and to get moving. Be the church. Let the church be the church and trumpet the great salvation and righteousness in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. He is our salvation. That's what David is declaring to us this morning. Amen. Shall we pray?